Hello, and welcome to another episode of Her Head in Films. I'm Caitlin, and I'm your host. On this podcast, I share my thoughts and feelings about films. What makes this podcast unique is that I weave in my own personal experiences with the films I talk about. I discuss the impact that cinema has on me and why I connect so deeply to it. Today's episode is about Michelangelo Antonioni's 1960 film La Ventura. This is really a big film in my life and I love it. It has haunted me for years. It's part of a series I'm doing about formative art house films that made me fall in love with cinema. I've talked about Carl Theodore Dreyer's The Passion of Joan of Arc, Chris Marker's La Jetée, Agnes Varda's Cleo from 5 to 7, and now I'm talking about Antonioni's La Ventura. So I will talk about the meaning of this film for me personally. I'll talk a bit about Antonioni's life and and his work. And so I hope that you will stick around and listen to the episode. Her Head in Films has a Patreon where you can financially support the podcast on a monthly basis and also access rewards and extras. Recently, I did a mini episode about Agnes Varda's recent documentary, Faces Places. So if you become a patron at a certain level, you can get access to that mini episode, along with a lot of other mini episodes that I've done about various films that I've watched. You can find more information at patreon.com slash herheadandfilms. At one level, you get a shout out on each episode. So I'd just like to give a shout out to my patrons, Spunden, Paulina, Olivia, Carolyn, Jesse, Feminist Overlord, Michelle, and Lindsay. Thank you all so much for supporting the podcast. You really do make the podcast possible. If financial support isn't an option, consider reviewing the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher, telling your friends and followers about the podcast, or just sending an encouraging message to me. I'm on Facebook, and you can see all my social media accounts listed in the description of each episode. Longtime listeners know that sometimes at the beginning of each episode, I like to talk about more general things that are also connected to cinema, but may have more connection to my everyday life or just personal things that I'm going through. And What I wanted to talk about today is the role that cinema is increasingly playing in my life. And I also wanted to talk about what cinema means to me and how personal it is. I was talking to a friend. um, We were messaging on Twitter and we both have this very deep connection to cinema and our conversation got me thinking more about it. And it has really become an obsession in my life. It has increased in the last few years as I have gone through profoundly difficult things like moving uh, from my home state. I live in another state now than where I grew up for my whole life, and that's been really hard. To move to another state, to be very alone, to be very isolated, to not have people that you know, 
And as someone who has social anxiety and I struggle with depression, it's very difficult for me to make friends and to meet people. I've always been a very lonely person. I lost my house um, that I had lived in my entire life for 26 years, and I'm 28 now. That's been a really um, painful experience to lose my home. So I feel very unrooted, uprooted. Um, I feel very untethered. I feel very unstable at times. I feel very lost. Um, and I've noticed that as I've gone through these things in the last few years, really kind of started in 2015, late 2015, I've found that as I go through these hardships, I have increasingly turned to cinema. I haven't, my obsession with films has grown and it has almost sort of consumed me in many ways, as evidenced by this podcast. I created the podcast so that I could talk about films and that I could explore them and I could share my heart and soul and how they make me feel. And so as that loneliness, as that alienation, um, as that sense of being lost um, has increased, so has this obsession with cinema. Because I think I'm searching for something through the films. I think I go to films for a lot of reasons. Um, but I think I go to them sometimes for vicarious experiences that I don't have in my everyday life. Um, it's just I love film. I can't quite put it into words. Um, sometimes I go through what I call like a mania, like a cinemania, and I'll watch films sort of obsessively. And that has sort of become a permanent state of my life, that every spare moment when I'm not working or I'm not, you know, spending time with my mom, who I'm really close to, any of that extra time is spent on films. I just watch films. That's what I do. Um, I don't even read the way that I used to. And I just feel sometimes like I'm on fire. And I can't stop burning with this intensity and this passion and this obsession. And that conversation with my really good friend, I adore her, it also made me think about, and I've been thinking about this for a while, and I did want to talk about it anyways, but our conversation just sort of um, sparked it in me. I think cinema, I think my relationship to cinema has been affected by the trauma that I've been through in my life. I've talked about it often on the podcast that my father died in 2006, um, when I was 16 years old. And a lot of what I deal with now, 12 years later, um, is the fallout from his death and the trauma of it. Because it really devastated me and destroyed me in a lot of ways. And I'm still struggling to cope with it on a daily basis. Often I feel sort of half dead myself. 
honestly, if I'm going to be completely honest. I am not someone who is an inspirational story. I am someone, and I'll always be honest about it, and I'll always be truthful about it. I am someone crawling on my hands and knees through life. I am someone broken and shattered and grief-stricken and torn apart, and I'll always be that way. Because there is not a part of me that is unscarred or unwounded or unscathed by this world and this life and the tragedies that I have known. You know, the people I have lost that I lost at a very early age and just the various experiences that I've had in my life, some of which you don't even know because I don't tell everything on this podcast. I don't talk about everything that I've been through. But I am very open about my father's death, and that is something that I'm comfortable talking about. But I have various traumas that I deal with. And so, something that happened after my father died was that I went to movies more. We had a cheap theater where I used to live, and it was very affordable, and I went and saw movies. And I have plans to talk more about that, to talk about... Um, film and my grief and the films that I watched in that theater and just different things that I definitely want to talk about in the next, I don't know, I've got it scheduled for a few months ahead of, of now. But I went to cinema out of my grief. I went to cinema out of my pain. That was... Cinema was a comforting thing for me. It was very comforting to go and sit in a movie theater and watch films. And so that is something that has extended, you know, through the last few years, for the last 12 years. But it's gotten more intense when I discovered Art House Cinema in 2011. That really changed things and changed things, and that was really a revelation to me. Um... And so cinema has just become more personal. It's become deeper. It's be, it's gotten its hooks in me, its claws. And I cannot get it out of me. And what I think cinema has done that maybe literature hasn't been able to do, although I, I do turn to writing and I do turn to literature a lot, and it is comforting, but... There is something about cinema. It really is beyond language. And I'm so tired of language sometimes. Like, my mind is always going. I'm always thinking. And I want to just shut it off sometimes. Like, and language for me is not enough. I struggle with language, even though I consider myself a writer. Um, I feel like there are things that are wordless, I feel like there are things that defy our language, that we don't always have words to put things in, you know, that they're not always the best containers for the human condition and experience, that I don't think every single thing can be captured by them. But of course, film has its limitations as well. All of these art forms have their limitations. I think that's why we need all of them. So I think there is something that a film can do that a book can't. That there's... The way cinema operates, it is beyond language. If you think about the early films, they were silent. 
There was no language. They were universal in that way, and kind of. There were the cards that would come up with dialogue and things like that. Um, but in its essence, cinema was visual. It was the imagery. And then later sound came and dialogue came and all of that. But what always haunts me about the films that I watch are, are the images. And the story is important too. I, I always talk about the story of a film or the narrative. or But sometimes it's the sound. It's the performance that the actor does. It's the way their body moves. It's a look on their face in a particular scene. It is the wind in the trees it is the ocean and, and the way the water moves and so cinema can capture these things cinema can capture movement and flesh and it can capture things that i think are beyond language and are beyond words and it can operate in the realm of emotion and feeling and the unconscious and and dreams and so it taps into something, I think, very deep and primal in us. And um, I think that's why I've gone to it in the aftermath of trauma in my life. Is because sometimes, it's because my brain has been changed by the trauma. Biologically, I feel different. I feel like my brain has been rewired by losing my father and going through different things that I've been through. And sometimes I'll look at a paragraph or I'll look at sentences and I won't comprehend them. I'll have to read them multiple times because there's something that's changed. You know, I don't want to say there's something wrong with me, but I struggle at times with language. I struggle to comprehend. I struggle to make sense of things. And so when I watch a film, it's like I can access it in a different way. I can access it on the level of my gut and my intuition and my emotions. Um, I know that a lot of people go to cinema for a lot of different reasons. There's a, you know, <clears throat> online criticism has really flourished. Online film criticism has flourished in this digital age. There's a lot of think pieces. There's a lot of opinion pieces about every film that comes out. And a lot of film journals and film websites tend to be very academic in the way that they talk about film. So some people go to film for academic reasons, for intellectual reasons, because they want to dissect what's going on, the messages in a film, how a film represents certain things. But I have to say that that is not why I go to cinema. I go to cinema for connection. I go to cinema for emotion. I go to cinema for feeling. I go to cinema for transcendence. I go to cinema really for healing. That it is a healing thing in my life to watch films. I go to cinema because it sets me on fire and it makes me feel alive and it makes me want to be alive after so much death and loss that I have been through. I don't have a church. I'm not religious. I don't believe in God. I don't have a church. I have cinema. That's what I have. And I'm clinging to it for dear life. I tell you.
with my bare hands. I try to hold on to life. I try to hold on to the things that make me feel something and that give me a reason to live and a reason to keep going when I struggle to do that and when I feel so empty and so ashamed and so I'm holding on to these films and cinema makes me feel happy doing this podcast gives me a purpose and I'm going to keep doing it I'm going to keep sharing my love for these films and I'm going to keep talking about them and writing about them and I'm going to put all of myself into this because this is what I love. I love these films. I love cinema. I love it unapologetically, unabashedly. I love it deeply. And I think for a while I was resisting it because I thought of myself as literary, thought of myself as a book person, you know, and I felt a lot of guilt because I don't read like I used to. But I think a part of me is going to let that go. Like, this is what I'm passionate about. This is what I love. I'm going to embrace it, you know. I'm going to put everything I have into it. And um, I really want to dedicate my life to this. I, I mean, this is not a career or anything, obviously, but the extra time that I have in my life, I want to give it to cinema. That's what I want to do. That's what I intend on doing. And I'm going to keep doing it, you know. That is important to me because this is what makes me feel alive. This is what makes me want to be alive. And um, I have to listen to that and I have to embrace it. And um, yeah, I just wanted to share that, that I just feel this very deep connection to films. And it is, it's strong and it's powerful and it's overwhelming at times, but it's beautiful and I'm grateful for it. And um, it is helping me survive and it's helping me live. And I think that is really important. And um, I just wanted to share that. Um, so it makes me emotional. <laughs> but cinema is just my passion. It's my church. It's... It's just everything to me. And um, I'm going to give everything that I have to it. Okay. So I want to talk a bit about Antonioni. I want to talk a bit about his life. Talk about his cinema. Talk about um, why I love his work. Um, what I have seen of it. And talk a little bit about the reception of La Ventura before I get into a deeper um, look at the film itself. So Michelangelo Antonioni is an Italian director. He was born in Ferrara, Italy in 1912. He died in 2007. So he lived to be 94 years old. 
he is a complicated figure in cinema history. Um, and I'll talk more about that in a moment. But um, he comes from a very sort of middle class bourgeois background. And for most of his life, those are the types of people that he will focus on in his cinema. And um, he actually began as a painter, or he was interested in painting at a very young age. And um, I think you can see that quality in his work. But um, he is a complicated figure, a controversial figure in some ways, I would say, um, because what he sort of ushers in with his work is a much more visual style of making films, films that are much more visual, films that are sometimes slower uh, paced than films that came uh, before Antonioni. Some people really love him, and I think there are other people who really dislike him. I think he's one of those directors... I don't know. I don't want to be black and white about it, but I think there are people who I think may I think there are maybe three people when it comes to Antonioni. This is just my theory. There are people who watch his films, and I'm talking about the the way his filmmaking starts with La Ventura in 1960, because he makes other films before that time. I'm talking about La Ventura, La Clise, La Noche. Red Desert, and on. I think there are people who the first time they see La Ventura or some of those other films, love them. They get it. They love it. They're into it. I think there are people who see those films and hate them. I think there are people who have seen La Ventura and absolutely dislike it and loathe it. And then I think there are people like me who saw La Ventura and didn't quite get it the first time and then came back to it and was blown away because that's me when I discovered or got more into art house cinema in 2011 Antonioni was one of the directors that I explored so as I said this episode is part of a series that I'm doing about formative art house films films that really changed my life Films that made me see cinema as an art form. Um, films that really awakened me to the power and the beauty of cinema. The first film was The Passion of Joan of Arc. And then I talked about Chris Marker's La Jetée. I talked about Agnes Varda's Cleo from 5 to 7. And so there's no way to talk about formative art house films for me without talking about La Ventura because this is a really important film for me personally. And, um, and it was a big film in Antonioni's career. It ushered him in as one of the preeminent art house directors. He absolutely sort of changed cinema with this film. Um, he changed the way people saw cinema. Um, some people will say that he really created almost a new language with film, which is it. And what's interesting to think about all the different films that I've talked about so far in this series is the visual element of them. That with The Passion of Joan of Arc, um, Dreyer's visual storytelling, it's a silent film. So he told it very visually. He told it through close-ups. 
or you think of Chris Marker's La Jete, it's told completely in still photographs, almost. Um, and so what we have with Antonioni is a very visual way of telling a story. And it's slower. It's a slow film. It is a plotless film. There's not a lot that happens. There's not a lot of plot, not a lot of excitement. It is about, um, it's about a mystery and a disappearance. It's basically about three people, Anna, Claudia, and Sandro. Anna is, um, with Sandro, their lovers. Claudia is Anna's best friend. And so these three, along with some other friends, they sort of go on vacation. They go out on like a boat and they're exploring this island and Anna disappears and um, that is sort of the central mystery of the film. But he com he completely subverts our expectations of a film. You know, in most films, if there's a mystery, if someone goes missing or whatever, it's solved. We eventually find out what happened to this person. Either they come back alive or their body's found or something happens. With Aventure, that doesn't happen. The film focuses on the growing relationship between Claudia and Sandro and how they start to fall in love with each other even though they should be grieving the disappearance of Anna, but they don't. So this film, um, it really completely subverts our expectations for a film. It's very visual and it has haunted me for years. The way I describe La Ventura is it's like a mood. It's like an atmosphere. And I think the key to Antonioni cinema, the key to appreciating it, and it's okay if you don't, although I would think if you don't like him, you wouldn't be listening to this episode. Um, that's just what I would assume. Um, but I think the key to his cinema is understanding that that he's not trying to really tell you a story. He's not trying to do some conventional narrative, at least not in La Ventura. He is trying to convey a mood and create an atmosphere. I think he's trying to capture feelings too. Um, but he's also trying to tell the story visually through the images. And so some people really like that and some people don't. Some people find his films pretentious because they focus on rich people. But as Antonioni himself has said, he came from a middle-class sort of bourgeois background. And so that's the world he knows. And so that is the world that he focused on in a lot of his cinema. For this episode, I watched a really great documentary that I do recommend. It's on YouTube. And it's part of the, the BBC Arena series. It was done in 1997. Um, about seven years before Antonioni actually died. And um, it's just called BBC Arena, Michelangelo Antonioni. And um, it features people talking about Antonioni, like Sam Shepard and Vanessa Redgrave. She was in his really iconic film, Blow Up. It features interviews with Antonioni, and it features interviews with writers who talk about his films. So I found, I found it to be a really enriching, uh, rewarding experience um, to watch. 
and um, his films, I mean, connecting it to what I was talking about earlier, like how cinema goes beyond language, that it sort of exists outside language at times. And I often feel that way about painting too and visual art, that it sort of communicates something that is um, ineffable and that we cannot put into words. I would say that there's something like that with Antonioni's cinema, especially with La Ventura. And La Ventura is often considered part of a trilogy that also includes um, La Noche from 1961 and La Cleese in 1962. And some people even say a tetralogy with Red Desert in 1964 which is Antonioni's first color film. Those are the four films of his that I have seen. I've also seen Blow Up. So those are the only Antonioni films I've seen. I'm not an expert about his life or his cinema by any means. But these four films um, were really crucial uh, for me, especially La Ventura, personally. Laclise, I struggle with. I still don't get Laclise at all. <laughs> I'm just going to be honest. The only part of that film that I like is the last final scene where it's all sort of ambient and there's like rain and it, it's um, it's very abstract in a way. There's no people. It's, it's this really amazing final scene. But for me, La Ventura is, it's one of my favorite films. I think it is one of the greatest films ever made because it as and I'm not the only one to say this because it creates sort of a new language with cinema and I think um when you see La Ventura I think you immediately know that you've never seen anything like this that it is different it is unique um because of that plotlessness because of the slowness because um things don't happen the way you expect them to it subverts your expectations constantly I think um, and some of the themes he deals with in his work are also very resonant for me. The themes of loneliness, of, of people being disconnected from each other. Um, those are very strong. There's a sense of despair, obviously, in his work. And, um, you know, even though he does focus on the bourgeoisie and people with money and really beautiful people, I think there is a depth there, and especially with La Ventura, and I'm going to talk more about this when I go deeper into it. I love the way he places his characters within a landscape. With La Ventura, they are on this island, and so they look so small against this huge island, and I think it sort of amplifies the loneliness of of people and the insignificance of our lives when we set it against things like nature you know and uh, I think he really taps into something uh, in those scenes with the landscape and I would say Red Desert is very similar in that way too of Monica Vitti in that film she's often in these very industrial landscapes and it amplifies her smallness and her insignificance at times but um, I want to talk a bit about what I learned in this BBC Arena documentary about Antonioni because I think it can kind of help deepen our understanding of La Ventura. Um, it, it's a really great documentary. It features um, people reading from this letter that Roland Barthes 
wrote about Antonioni or to Antonioni in 1980, where he talks about his cinema and stuff like that. But as I said, um, Antonioni was really like a painter. He started that way. And I think you see that visual uh, texture in his work that obviously, and I talk about um, something similar with Agnes Varda in Cleo, Cleo from Five to Seven, that Varda started as a um, photographer. And um, she came from a visual background. And so it's very interesting to think about how Antonioni comes from a similar visual background. And so I think you obviously see that in his cinema. He was born into a middle class family, but he actually came into cinema a bit late in his 20s. He started as a reviewer. He sort of wrote some reviews and some screenplays and then eventually transitioned into making his own film. Um, his first film, it's interesting to note, his first film was actually a documentary about people living in poverty in Italy. It was made in the late 1940s or during the 1940s, during, you know, fascism, obviously, during the reign of Mussolini. And this was actually a taboo topic um, for him to film. And so he filmed these very poor working class people in the Po region of Italy, I think. Um, so it's it's sort of strange to think that he started out with this documentary that's sort of focusing on social issues, but then he's later known as someone who who obviously tells more stories of the bourgeoisie. And really, as many of you may know, in the 1940s, there was a radical film movement happening in Italy called neorealism, which was really a reaction against fascism. It came out of the Second World War, too, with Roberto Rossellini, Vittorio De Sica, this is a monumental shift in cinema. This is a monumental movement in cinema that I hope to explore further in future episodes because I'm a huge fan of the Italian neorealists, whether it is De Sica or Rossellini. Um, I love Rome Open City. I love The Bicycle Thieves. I love Umberto D. So these are like films that I cherish. Um, and it was very dominant in the late 1940s. Um, but in 1950, Antonioni does release his first feature film, which is Story of a Love Affair, and he focuses on the bourgeoisie. So already in 1950, we see that shift that he's making, where he focuses more on, you know, people with money. And that is sometimes a criticism against him, that he only focuses on people like that. But that is the world he knew, you know, and, and that's why he focused on it. So, um, I want to talk a bit about, um, uh, something in this documentary that was interesting was an interview with Monica Vitti and Monica, and I'm going to talk more about her when I talk about La Ventura because I love Monica Vitti and, um, I consider her one of the most beautiful actresses and dynamic actresses to ever grace the screen, along with Jeanne Moreau and Anna Karina. And I guess these women would be considered muses, and Monica would certainly be considered Antonioni's muse. But I think I want to argue that she was much more than that, that these women were always much more than muses, and that um, 
these films and La Ventura and La Noche, La Clise, Red Desert, these would not be the same films with another actress. Monica Vitti is central to those films. She is the face of those films. And it is her face that haunts you, you know. And um, in an interview, Vitti says that she came to know herself and to know her capabilities as a performer through Antonioni and the way he saw her. And that that was sort of an awakening for her, like a revelation for her. And I thought that was very interesting. And there's also this great story about Antonioni and Monica Vitti visiting Mark Rothko um, at his studio. This was shortly after Red Desert came out. And they said that he and Rothko were actually sort of kindred spirits. And I, I found this fascinating. But I think it makes sense because of Antonioni's grounding in painting and how he sort of started as a painter before he became a filmmaker. But it's just fascinating to think about Antonioni and Rothko hanging out, right? I love Mark Rothko. I would consider him one of my favorite painters. So I want to talk a moment about the reception of La Ventura. This was a very controversial film when it was released. At Cannes, it won the jury prize in 1960, but when it was screened, it was sort of booed, and people hated it, and um, it was not received well at all. Um, there's actually an interview with Monica Vitti where she talks about how people laughed at really inappropriate moments of the film. Um, Vitti actually was crying after the screening because of... Uh, the way it was received. So the critics really did not like it when it first came out, but the public embraced it. And it was actually a box office hit, which I was really interested to learn. Like I didn't even know about, I didn't even know that. Um, so I, you know, I have like this love hate relationship with can sometimes like there's actually a lot of stories like this in the history of can of Films that we would consider like touchstones and really important getting like booed at Cannes. So I don't know if I totally trust their judgment at times, right? Um, I, but at the same time, my own experience with La Ventura was complicated because I saw it in 2011, but I don't know if I fully comprehended it at the time. It's only in the years since that I've come back to it, that I've reappraised it, that I have, that it has sort of germinated and percolated, I guess, in my mind and has really haunted me. So um, this film sort of left this residue that I have not been able to sort of wipe away or get rid of. Um, and I've watched it several times since 2011. And I think it stands as... A masterpiece. I think it stands as an important work of art. I think that with each viewing, you uncover something or you realize something. And um, it's, it, it is that loneliness, it is that despair, but it's also sort of the ambiguity of the film, the openness of the film. 
I think you can bring a lot of different interpretations to it. And as I said before, it subverts all our expectations. I think that mystery remaining unsolved, I think some people would see that as a liability, but I see that as a strength, that we don't really know whatever happened to Anna. I think that's a really important part of the film. And um, I wanted to share a quote from Antonioni's book, the architecture of vision it sort of features his writings it features interviews but i thought this was a very interesting quote and he wrote what is it that torments and motivates modern man of all that has happened and is now happening in the world what are the repercussions inside a man what are the consequences in his most intimate relationships and dealings with others Today, more than ever, these are the questions we should keep in mind when we prepare ourselves to make a film, unquote. And so I would argue that what distinguishes Antonioni's cinema is the interiority of it. An interiority that is suggested, obviously, and not shown. But there is this sense that people are unknowable, even to themselves and especially to others, that you cannot fully know another person. Or you may think you know them, but you don't really. You know, I, I seriously doubt that Anna would have guessed that if she went missing or if something happened to her, that her best friend and her lover would get together. You know, people in, especially La Ventura, they do things constantly that you don't expect them to do. And so I think there's this sense of being unknowable to ourselves. And there is that sense of interiority to the characters. That it's really about the inner torment of them. But we don't necessarily see that expressed in the exterior of the film. Or, in a way, it is through the visual cues, maybe. I don't know if I'm saying that right. But when we see the, the sea churning, right? You know, when we're at the island and the sea is churning, that perhaps that is a reflection of what of the inner psychology of those characters. That what is outside of them is sort of reflecting what's going on inside of them. But, of course, that's really hard for people to interpret sometimes. If you're used to melodrama, if you're used to different modes of watching a film where if somebody's sad, they cry, and if somebody's mad, they beat their chest, you know, where it's very demonstrative and everything is sort of handed to you, I think Antonioni's cinema is much more subtle, and you don't always know what is going on inside of the characters. They don't always reveal that part of themselves and they sort of hide and they don't communicate it and they don't express it. But that doesn't mean that there's not something going on inside of them. We just don't know it. We don't have access to it, just like we don't have access to it in everyday life either. And so I think a lot of people would argue that his cinema more fully reflects everyday life in its ambiguities, in its complexities, in its slowness, in its boredom. Not every moment of our lives is filled with fascinating and fun things. Sometimes you're just looking, you're just staring into space, or not much is happening. And so sometimes that's in an Antonioni film too, where 
There's not a lot going on. You know, Monica Vitti standing on an island looking at the ocean or looking out of a window. I don't have a problem with that. You know, I don't need every single thing in a film to be about the plot or to be about this or to be about that. Sometimes it can just be. And that's okay. That's why I say La Ventura is a mood. It's an atmosphere. It's something you feel. It's something that stays with you. If if that makes any sense. And um and so through through those different devices and techniques, he conveys that loneliness, that alienation, that emptiness, um, that dislocation and disconnection that people feel in the modern world and in everyday life. So um, that's just sort of, I guess, my interpretation of, of some of his cinema. But there is an interiority to it and there is an imp- there's an impenetrability to his cinema that I think bothers a lot of people that they can't act. It's not accessible. And I wouldn't say his films are accessible. Not at all. And I'm okay with that. I'm okay with it being inaccessible because in its inaccessibility, in its impenetrability, there is also an openness and there is, um, there's room for multiple interpretations there's room for lots of different ideas, things that you can bring to the film, things that you can get out of it. I think maybe you get out of it what you put into it when you're viewing an Antonioni film. That there are different interpretations, there are different ways to think about it and feel about it. And if you don't like his films, that's okay too. I just happen to really love this particular film and also Red Desert and La Noche. I'm still struggling with Laclis personally. So I don't know if I'll ever um, completely get it um, at all. But um, so I just wanted to give you a little bit of background about Antonio, a little bit of background about La Ventura um, before I got really deep into it. Um, but he's certainly not an easy director. He's not a simple director. I haven't seen his later works yet. Um, I might try to do that eventually. But at the same time, I would ask you, if you've not seen his cinema, to try to be open to it and to try to uh, to to embrace it. You know that it it is different. It is challenging. Um, but but it had to be. You know, he, he, if he didn't do it, then who would have? I mean, it's important that he created this language. It's important that he um, created these films. I think they have been influential. I think they have changed cinema. So I think we should at the same time be really grateful for Antonioni. And I think he feels, even though this was made in 1960, you know, 58 years ago, right? Um if my math is correct, I'm not great with uh, math. Even though they were made that long ago, they still feel very modern, still very fresh, and still very resonant. Okay, so now I want to talk about the film itself. And this episode may get a little bit long. Um, I just, there's so much to fit in. There's so much to say. There's so much to talk about. Um... 
watching this film for the podcast again this has to be at least my third or fourth time seeing it since 2011 which is when I first saw it because that was the year when I got more interested in European art house cinema and I was watching all kinds of different directors and Tonioni was really central to that so he was actually really central to me discovering <clears throat> art house cinema and getting interested in it and so that's why he's part of this series along with the passion of Joan of Arc and La Jetée and Cleo from five to seven because I don't think I would be the cinephile I am today without his work and I think what Antonioni does especially starting with La Ventura which is one of his most famous films many critics many people would consider it one of the greatest films ever made and I think I have to agree and I think it is probably in my top five at this point because watching it again for this podcast I was absolutely enraptured by it and it was if it just felt like this experience um every time I watch it I feel like I see something different or I just get completely pulled into the rhythm and the mood and the atmosphere of this film. It completely just takes me over. But I will say that when I first saw it in 2011, and I'm sharing this because I think it's important, and I think those of you who might be starting out with Art House or might not be really knowledgeable about it or haven't watched a lot of it, I think you need to be aware that it is a process of adjustment to watch art house films. They are called art house for a reason because they are not like your typical film that you're going to go watch in a movie theater. They're, they're not the same as a big blockbuster film. They require, I think, different skills on the part of the viewer, skills that the viewer has, but skills that may not be fully sharpened or, or fully in use. And so there is an adjustment. And I think for me, when I first saw it in 2011, the film did not hit me the same way that it does now that I watch it a third or fourth time. It left, as I said earlier, a residue that I could not wipe away. It, um... I found myself thinking about it. I found the images staying with me. And I think this is the power of Antonioni cinema, especially with La Ventura, possibly, you know, Red Desert, Laclise. It's the way these, he uses images to tell the story. He is a visual storyteller. He created, in the words of a lot of critics, a new language, a new grammar with film because the images primarily tell the story. You cannot understand the story without understanding the images. It's very visual, the way that he um, tells stories and, and the way he created films. And I was thinking about the effect of this film, even though I didn't get it the first time I saw it. It lingered. And I find that some of the best films do that. That you don't always get it in the moment. There can be a delayed reaction. Um, I think what they can do is that there's sort of this shimmer that remains about the film. Um, it, it just, 
like shimmers in your memory. And that's the way La Ventura was for me. It gnawed at me for years until I went back to it and watched it a second time a few years later. And then I got it. Then the light bulb went off. Then something very deep happened. And it happened again watching it for this podcast. Um, It's just... It's an amazing film for me. And I know there are people that don't like it. I'm not going to say that I love every single film Antonioni has ever made. But I think for me, La Ventura is the masterpiece. Most people would say I think Laclis. I mean, a lot of people who love his work would say Laclis. But I don't get that one as much. I'm, I try. I, I'm going to revisit it because I, I maybe it's like La Ventura. You know, the first time I saw it. I didn't totally get it, but maybe if I go back to it a second or a third time, it will make more sense to me. And I'm going to try to do that, but for now, La Ventura is just, it's this, um, it has a deep presence in my life, I would say, and watching it again for the podcast just absolutely reconfirmed that for me. This really is the kind of film where my love for it does not diminish over time. It just grows and grows and grows. That with each viewing, it sort of intensifies. And I just feel sort of um, like I'm glowing or something after I watch it. There is certainly an afterglow about this film. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about scenes and images and things like that. Um, Sometimes I will talk about a film through the themes. I did that with Cleo from 5 to 7. But I think I want to go chronologically with this film and just talk about different scenes and why I love them so much. So I watched this film through Filmstruck. As many of you know, I mention it on the podcast all the time. I really love Filmstruck. It's a gift to us cinephiles because we can't find these films on Netflix and Hulu. So Filmstruck is really vital if you're a cinephile. I'm not paid to say that. I'm not told to say that. It's just a service that I use and that I do want you to know about if you're interested in art house cinema. They have the Criterion Collection on the website and that is um, where La Ventura is. I was able to watch the film because it's with the Criterion Collection on the channel, on the um, on the website. It's called the Criterion Channel. They offer extras with a lot of the films, and so this film came with quite a few extras. I didn't watch all of them. I only have so much time, but um, I did watch it with the audio commentary, and there's audio commentary by Gene Youngblood. And at first I wasn't going to do it because I I listened a few minutes and I was like, oh, this is really academic. This is really highly intellectual film theory and stuff like that that he's talking about. And so I was a little, I was just worried I wouldn't be able to comprehend it or I don't connect very much to theory and academia. But I'm actually glad that I did listen with the audio because he did provide insights. And I wanted to share something he talked about in terms of the language that Antonioni created. Because I feel like I'm struggling to explain it because I'm not 
an academic, you know, and I, I can't quite explain to you why the language of this film is so important or what the language of the film is. What he says in the audio commentary is that in this film, there are no symbols or metaphors um, that when you see things, they are what they are. They're not trying to represent something else, but the film is told through images you cannot understand the story without under, without the images. You cannot um, extricate them from each other. You know, you couldn't just talk about the story, but then not reference the images. That is why it's such a visual film and why it was so revolutionary. He uses the quote, visual density, unquote, to describe this film. And he talks about how we are reading the film and we read the characters and their, quote, movements in the composition, unquote. So it's very important the way the scene is set up, the way it's composed, almost like a painter would compose a portrait. Um, the way everything in the scene is done for a reason, that there is a certain way that the actors move, that the way they tilt their head. And when I watched that arena documentary, Vanessa Redgrave talked about this um, and about working with Antonioni on Blow Up, that he was sort of the first director she met where everything mattered, you know, the angle of her head, the way she put her hand. So um, something that Antonioni was really important in was elevating cinema to an art form, to putting it on the same level as a novel, as a painting, that you can read these scenes the way you would read a text or the way you would examine a painting. Now, I don't go to the film in that way. You know, I'm not going to parse and dissect individual frames and scenes of the film, but there are people who do that and they find that enriching. And so Youngblood says that Antonioni was very crucial in elevating cinema to that level of an art form. That's why it's called Art House, you know. So I just wanted to share that. I was worried a little bit with the commentary that it would influence me and that it would sort of taint the way I saw the film, that I wouldn't be able to come up with my own thoughts, although I have a million thoughts about this film, so that wasn't a problem. But when I'm referencing something that Youngblood um, says, and if you hear that rustling, it's my notes, I will, I will cite him and I will say that. I will say this is what Youngblood um, says, because I don't want to take uh, credit. Um, I don't want to take credit for that at all. I don't want to take credit for things that are not mine. So I will say Youngblood says this, but, um, but I also want to share my own thoughts and my own opinions about the film. And they may not be very academic and they may not sort of align with what film study scholars think about the film. But these are my thoughts. Um, so we begin with our three main characters. We have Anna, we have Sandro, and we have Claudia. Claudia is played by Monica Vitti. And Monica Vitti was um, a huge star in Antonioni's films. She was in La Ventura, La Clise, La Noche, Red Desert. 
and she is central to these films. They had met a few years earlier before the film. She's trained in the theater, and she was in theater before she went to films. And um, I think their partnership is very important, you know. And as I said before, she's considered sort of the muse. and But I would say she's more than a muse. She was an actress in her own right. And while she does admit that Antonioni helped her um, see herself in a different way, see herself in a deeper way, I don't think we should underestimate or erase what she brought to these films. That they are dynamic and they are memorable and they are haunting because of her, because of her face, because of the way she acted. And she is a beautiful woman. She was gorgeous. She was 28 when this film was, was filmed. And and, um, and they had a relationship for a few years and it eventually ended. But she brings her own dynamism, her own personality, her own way of being in these scenes. And I don't think that that should be erased. And I don't think that we should act like he is... Um, <clears throat> that he that these films would be what they are without her. She was an important presence. And I just don't ever want to diminish that. I always I just have a problem when we reduce these women to just being muses. This was hard work making this film. They um they filmed on the Aeolian Islands. It was a brutal, brutal shoot. They these islands are basically uninhabited they're very rocky terrain. Um, the The shoot was very difficult. At one time, the crew was sort of like revolted or they went on strike. They ran out of money. It was cold. There were flies. Um, Youngblood tells us some of that. Um, it was a grueling, grueling shoot. And she was there and she was doing it. All the actors were. And so I never want to like not acknowledge the labor and the work that these actors do and especially Monica Vitti. Monica is um, carrying this film and she carries the other films as well and so I would see them as a partnership you know working together to create these very memorable classic timeless films. So um, there's Anna, Sandro and Claudia. Claudia played by Monica Vitti. Anna and Sandro are lovers, but at the beginning of the film, she goes to see him, and they haven't seen each other in a month, so this is really a relationship that is on the rocks, so to speak, no pun intended, but I, you know, that is kind of a pun, <laughs> um, there is this distance and this disconnection between Anna and Sandro. And I think this is a theme that will recur throughout the film, is that sense of disconnection. And obviously people have brought up alienation and things like that. Um, I mean, it's there. There is a disconnection between these characters. Um, and I think that is a major part of the film. But um, I think Anna's very ambivalent about Sandro. I wouldn't say that there's a lot of passion between the two of them, especially in the early scene when they're making love. There's this fascinating part of it where they're kissing, but she's, you know, usually when you kiss someone, you have your eyes closed and you're engaged in it, and she's not. She has her eyes open. She's looking at him. She is unhappy with him she is restless in the relationship something is missing and I think for all these characters there is a void there is something missing from their lives 
And um, they're trying to find a way to fill that emptiness. And they don't know how. And often they'll do it through sex or, they'll do it, or, they'll, or they will do it through these very rash decisions or these rash um, relationships. You know, later on in the film, Sandro and Claudia's relationship will develop, but they've barely known each other except for a few days. But they quickly get into this relationship with each other. And I think it comes out of the instability of the moment of, of Anna's disappearance and all of that. And um, so these are characters where something is missing and they don't know what it is. And they can't, they can't put it into words. They can't even identify it. But they live with this absence. And it's interesting how Anna's disappearance will almost make that absence physical. That, she, that her disappearance almost embodies the absence at the heart, at the core of these characters, I think. That there is something lacking. And I think so many, so many of us feel this. That there is an absence in our lives. There is a, some, a missing piece. And we don't quite know <clears throat> what to do. You know, we're just sort of flailing. We're just sort of trying to survive life and get through it as best we can. But we know that there's something essential missing from our lives. And I see that with these characters. And yes, they're beautiful. And yes, they're rich. And that is a valid critique, I guess, of Antonioni's cinema. That he only focus on, focuses on the bourgeoisie. But focusing on people with money does free you to do things that you can't do when you're talking about the working class. You know, if you're talking about the working class, like the bicycle thieves or whatever, you have to acknowledge the social situation in which they live. And you've got to deal with that. And you've got to confront that. Um, sometimes I think it's just a bit easier for directors or whoever to focus on people with money because you don't have to focus on that. You can, you can go deeper more into the psychology and they have this freedom. They don't have jobs. They don't have, you know, you don't have to get into the nitty gritty of everyday life the way you do with working class characters who have very real struggles and challenges that are different from the middle class and, and the, um, the bourgeoisie. You know, and some directors just want to focus on other issues. They don't want to talk about those social issues. They want to, you know, they want to focus on these beautiful people who have problems. And I would also stress that because, but just that just because people have money does not mean that they cannot hurt or have pain, that capitalism has ingrained in us this idea that if you have money, if you have, if you have material comfort, then everything should be fine. And that's not the reality of life. You know, poor people, people without money, they have emotional, psychological problems too. They yearn and ache. And people with money have the same thing. Just because you have money does not mean that you are free from from pain or grief or whatever, you know. And so I understand the critique, but at the same time, I, I love these films. And so it's not something that I want to linger on. You know, these are the characters we're given, and I want to look at them, and I want to talk about them. And I just think that we can have both, you know, we can have films, we need more films 
about the working class and the poor. There is a complete dearth of them. I mean, the Florida Project is about the only thing I can mention that's been made lately. There is no focus on the working class and people who struggle. But it's okay to enjoy films about people with money too. And it's okay to connect to those films and to the issues that are raised in them. And um, so I just wanted to acknowledge that for a moment. But um, this film, like watching it, it is about beautiful people. I mean, these actors are gorgeous. Monica Vitti's gorgeous. Um, it's, the beauty and the aesthetics of the film are just overwhelming at times. I, w- I said I was not going to screenshot because when I screenshot film, when I take screenshots of a film, I don't know how many of you do that, but I tend to watch films on my laptop. And so I will take screenshots of different scenes. It's just a way that I engage with the film. I like to capture images. It helps me remember the film. It helps. It just helps me to um, to take these screenshots. But it slows me down when I'm watching the film because I have to stop. I have to pause. I have to take my screenshot. And I said, you know what? I'm not going to do it this time. I'm just going to watch the film And I ended up screenshotting the whole damn thing, I tell you. I took more than 50. It was ridiculous, but I think that speaks to the visual beauty of this film, that it is just breathtaking. I mean, absolutely breathtaking. So Sandro, Anna, and Claudia, with some friends who are also rich and have money, we're not sure, though, how rich Claudia is. She doesn't seem quite to come from a very rich background. She doesn't always seem to fit in with these ultra rich people. But um but they go with some friends on a boat and they're gonna go to the Aeolian Islands. And these islands were once volcanoes and they definitely have that sort of volcanic vol- volcanic look. And we start to learn a bit about Anna in these scenes. She is Someone who's very, I would say, unreliable. She's kind of unstable in a way because at one point she jumps off the boat while it's moving and while, and they all start to go swimming and then all of a sudden she says, oh, there's a shark. And so everybody runs out of the water. There was no shark. Later on, she tells um, Claudia that there was no shark in the water. So already, I think Antonioni is setting Anna up as this very like a live wire she's unreliable you know you don't know if you can trust her or trust what she's saying and I think this is actually really relevant to the idea to her disappearance um maybe she did just leave we don't know so they embark and they go on one of the islands and they're just exploring it Um, Anna talks to Sandro and she wants to break up or she wants to take a break. She's very unhappy in the relationship and she doesn't feel connected to him anymore. The way she says it, it was so fascinating to me. She says, I don't feel you anymore. I thought that was very interesting. What gets me about Antonioni and his reputation, it's weird because his reputation is as this cold intellectual director. That's this image that he has um he's seen i think as a difficult director as highly intellectual and i would actually argue the opposite that 
he's not pretentious and he's not a shallow director at all and he's not cold and he's not hyper intellectual um at least not for me and La Ventura this is a this is a movie about feeling about emotion about the in, the volcanic interiority of characters um it's about emotion and feeling. I would say, like I said earlier, this film is a mood. It's an atmosphere. I think you have to be intuitive about the film and instinctual. And I think you do have to feel it. And so I think that's why, um, you know, I'm not a hyper intellectual person. I'm not an academic person. When I connect to films, I connect on a gut level. I connect to through feeling and emotion and so for me, I think Antonioni is the complete opposite of those things. I think he's very deep and there's a lot of feeling in this film. And um, so after Sandro and Anna have their discussion and she wants to break it off, um, I had not noticed this with my previous viewings, but Youngblood, Gene Youngblood, in the commentary... He brings it up and he says, do you hear that boat? So after her and Sandro talk, we see like a little boat in the distance and we hear it. <clears throat> we don't see anybody on it. And it raises the fascinating possibility that Anna is on that boat. Because we know after this scene that she disappears and she's gone. And so this is the heart of the film. This is a big part of the film is this mystery of Anna, of what happens to Anna because she disappears and we don't know by the end of the film what happens. There is no closure. The mystery is not solved. It completely subverts our expectations of a mystery movie um, in that way. And I think this is what gives the film its power is that we do not know and I think it's positing also that there are things in life that are unknowable, that we will never know, and that we will never understand. And this is an important part of the film, is the way that there is no closure, the way we are um, deprived of any answer about the whereabouts of Anna. So that little boat in the distance raises some possibilities that perhaps she left the island voluntarily and that she is alive. I think for me, I like to think that she just left. I mean, I think it's sort of an interesting idea. We already know that she's sort of unpredictable, you know, and that she does things in the moment and on a lark. And so this is absolutely possible that Anna could have walked around the island, that she could have seen a boat and that she got on it and she left the island. Now it's equally just as possible that she fell into the to the sea and she drowned. We don't know. You know, anybody's guess is valid. But I just love this idea that, hey, maybe she just left and maybe she is alive the whole time. And um, she just wanted to start over or she just wanted to get away. Um <clears throat> I mean, that's a great possibility, too. And then on the other hand, she could... <clears throat> sorry. <clears throat> she could really be dead. <laughs> and we we just don't know. And um, 
And I forgot to mention that Anna and Sandra were engaged at one time. I don't know if she's calling off the engagement in these scenes, but this is basically like they are fiancés. So they they had a strong connection, but obviously their relationship is going through turmoil. <clears throat> but I thought that boat was so fascinating. I just, I loved that and I had never noticed it all the other times that I watched the film. <clears throat> so Anna's disappearance will have huge consequences in the film. And um, there's this really great <clears throat> sequence. Um, <clears throat> and I love this scene. I love when they are on the island and they're searching the island for Anna. This is probably the part that haunts me the most or that I think about the most is that island. I mean, to me, it signifies something. I don't think it's intent. I don't think it's meant to be a symbol or, or something like that. But I mean, I don't usually read into things in this way. But for me, this island has a very strong power about it. You know, it was once a volcano, obviously, you know, this is an uninhabitable space. This is this is a space that is inhospitable to humans, to people for the most part. And yet here are these people searching it. They're really in a space that they don't understand, that they don't know, that they don't know how to navigate in many ways. Sort of reminds me of life, you know, of like the difficulty of navigating life and not understanding everything and not having answers and not having closure and so that's why I think Antonioni's films are so important and so modern and really timeless is that he I think he brings those issues out that we don't get closure in real life and not everything makes sense in real life and not everything that a character does makes sense and not every moment of our lives is filled with exciting things. Sometimes there's long periods where nothing happens and we're bored or we do things that we wouldn't think we would do. You know, do you think Claudia ever thought that if her best friend Anna went missing, she would fall in love with Anna's boyfriend? I don't necessarily think Claudia thought that about herself. But these circumstances happen and that's where she is. You know, that's what happens. And so... Um, I think that is why Antonioni's cinema matters is that it is saying you don't always get answers and everything isn't always resolved and there isn't always some larger meaning, you know, we're just sort of struggling through life, aren't we? And the island, I think, brings that into relief of the vastness of this island and you see their tiny bodies against it. And I think it magnifies the insignificance of our lives, the smallness of our lives. I mean, next to these islands, you know, Sandro and Anna's, you know, romantic uh, issues are, are just tiny in comparison with history, with, with time and all of that. Um, you know, those islands have probably been around for millions of years. And... Um, it's a reminder of our own insignificance and, and smallness in the universe, I think. And these scenes of the island, these scenes of um, the landscape, 
were just breathtaking for me. I mean, every time I see the scene on the island, it's just, to me, it's everything. It's just, you know, I would compare it to a few things for me in my cinema viewing. I thought about Roberto Rossellini's Stromboli. I thought about Ingrid Bergman. She, I think she lives on this Italian island where there's a volcano in the background. And she really lives her life in the shadow of this volcano. And um, I haven't seen the film in years, so I can't remember everything about it. But when I was watching La Ventura, I was reminded a bit of Stromboli. I was also reminded a bit of Picnic at Hanging Rock by Peter Weir, where this is another film where landscape, where this looming rock formation, this ancient rock formation, takes on a huge amount of meaning and significance in the lives of the characters. It's also a film about a disappearance that is never solved. I would actually wonder if, if Weir was inspired by La Ventura. I don't think we could have Picnic at Hanging Rock without La Ventura. You know, we could not have this unsolved mystery without this film, you know, that did it first or that did it best. Um, but these, but the way that landscape is used in the film is just breathtaking. And I really feel like Antonioni captures the texture of this terrain, its ancient sort of primal power, its alien immensity. This is a very alien landscape, I think. It's almost lunar. It's almost a lunar landscape with sort of the crevices. I mean, there's not really craters, but to me, there's just something outside of the world about it. It's like otherworldly to me. Um, this, this land, this island is unknowable, just as we are unknowable. And just as we are wild, you know, this landscape is wild. These characters are so unknowable. And, um... I think the landscape reinforces that. In this part of the film on the island, there are few or no close-ups. Um, we often see the characters, especially Claudia and Sandro, from behind. Um, and then the landscape is in front of them. The landscape really rises above them and engulfs them. It's almost like they're really the last people on earth you know, um, so, it, yeah, we don't get many close-ups, it's, it's a lot of scenes of them walking around, and just their bodies are in the landscape itself, their bodies are framed by the landscape, and almost drowned and engulfed by this landscape, um, it's completely overwhelming, so, um, Sandro and Claudia stay on the island. They want to keep searching for Anna. Um, but it also, this island is what brings Claudia and Sandro together. They are really connected through their search for Anna and their grief over losing Anna. They don't know what's happened to her, but I think obviously you would expect the worst. That you're on this island, how in the world did somebody get off of it? They may not have noticed the boat earlier. So they're probably, they have the worst fears that she probably has died. Or that maybe she fell or she, you know, hurt her ankle and she can't get up and walk. And so that's why they're searching for her. And the and there are some more beautiful scenes and sequences in this part. Um... There's this moment when Claudia 
runs out into the rain and she just screams Anna's name and she's just standing there. Um, we see her from the back again and it's like this moment of just primal despair and, and grief of where are you? You know, what has happened to you? And, um, I am really haunted by stories where people have disappeared and never been found. I mean, think about Amelia Earhart, right? I mean, this mystery obsesses people. But even now, you know, I'll watch crime shows because those of you who know me, I like true crime. I watch true crime shows a lot. And there is a show called Disappeared. It comes on Investigation Discovery Channel. And it's about people who have disappeared and they haven't been found and their families don't know what happened to them. And I just always find those stories so gut-wrenching that people do not know. It, it causes its own sort of torment and anguish to not know what happened to the person that you love. And so I don't think that's necessarily what Antonioni is trying to explore, but I do think it's an important it's an important aspect of the film of imagine Sandro and Claudia's in internal emotions, the turmoil, the fear, and how they are not going to know how to deal with that. These are people who are lost. These are people who do not know what to do with what they are feeling. They did not expect this to ever happen. And so I don't think they know how to deal with it. You can tell that Claudia especially is in a lot of pain over it. And then there's this other scene where she wakes up. They like they sleep in this hut overnight. And she wraps herself in a blanket. And she goes and she opens the window. She stands at the window. And watches the sun rise over the water. I mean it's this gorgeous beautiful scene. I just. I don't even know what to say. I mean. Um. I think you either feel this movie or you don't. You know, you either find it boring and slow and stupid and pretentious, or I really just think you you don't. Like you you get it, you feel it, you're enraptured by the beauty of it and the depth of it. I think there's great depth in this film. Not much happens. You know, not much happens in this film in general. People are walking around, people are on an island, people are at a party. It's it's plotless, and I talked about the plotlessness of Cleo from 5 to 7 by Agnes Varda, which is another film in this series that I'm doing, a formative art house films. Um, I don't have a problem with plotlessness. I think some people can't handle it. You know, they can't handle a story where not a lot happens, or there's not a lot of suspense, or there's not a lot of causation, you know, cause and effect of things happening. But um, it doesn't really bother me. You know, I not a lot happens in the film, but I think a lot happens in the film. And I think, as I said before, you get out of it what you put into it. And you imbue these scenes with meaning. You bring the meaning to it, I think in your reading of the film. I think it requires that of the viewer, that it requires you to be there, to interpret, to read it, to feel it, to be open to it. 
I mean, even today, films are defined by action and plot. Even though we have Art House, even though Antonioni helped to usher in what we would think of as Art House cinema, of things with less plot, of things with um, more of a meandering thing, more of an atmosphere and a mood um, where it's not dependent on plot. Even today, plot matters. You know, that's what's in the blockbusters. I think even now a film like this, slow, contemplative, evocative, suggestive, it's not handing you everything. You have to do a certain amount of work or you have to at least go with the flow of the film and allow yourself to be um, taken in by it. You have to sort of surrender, I think, to a film like this. I do think this film is still quite radical. Um... The characters don't speak much. There's not a ton of dialogue. Even when there is dialogue, it doesn't really tell us much, you know, because these characters are not able to really communicate what they feel. So often the outer landscape, the things outside of them are sort of corresponding to their inner depths and their inner emotions. I would say that their silence speaks the way they stare into the distance, longing to see Anna, that speaks so much. That they don't need to talk. I don't think there needs to be plot. You're looking at the actors. You're reading their faces. You're reading the way they look into into space. You're looking um, at the way they move their body. You're looking at the landscape. And that is what communicates to you. That is what speaks. So, this whole scene on the island is just, for me, it's, it's an important, it's an important sequence in cinema for me, this, this island thing, like, I can't quite explain what it is, there is this mystery at the heart of this film that lives on beyond the film, and it lives on in the viewer of this, this mystery that, um, obsesses me, um, the island, the sea, the sky, all of these things are a reminder, I think, of life's essential mystery. And also the smallness of our lives next to larger forces. That there are so many things beyond us, beyond our control. But um, that whole, those, those scenes on the island are just, just masterful, you know. They really are. So, Claudia and Sandro are falling in love. It starts on the island. There is a kiss on a boat that comes. Um, But Claudia is hesitant and she resists it because of the ramifications of it. That what does it mean for her to be falling in love with her best friend's boyfriend or fiancé after her best friend has gone missing? I think... um, Claudia is scared that it makes her seem cold, that it makes her seem unfeeling or like she didn't care about Anna. And Youngblood, Gene Youngblood in his audio, makes a really great argument. And I'm going to agree with him and I'm going to expand on it. He argues that that Sandro and Claudia falling in love is not a betrayal. That often it is read as a betrayal. We're often supposed, I don't know if we're supposed to, but I think there are people that look at Claudia and Sandro and judge them 
and see them as like disgusting and terrible friends. <clears throat> Sorry. And how dare they? How how could they, you know, um how could they betray Anna? Betray their best friend? Although I would ask you, if Anna, if we go with the premise that Anna just left, what has Anna done to Sandro and Claudia? I mean, why would you put your friends through that kind of pain? I mean, there is a reading in the film that suggests that she may have left voluntarily. We do not know for sure that she is dead. Look what that has inflicted on them. I mean, we don't know for sure, but that is one possibility. But often these characters are seen as like empty and hollow and, you know, um, maybe like terrible people because they are falling in love. And with this watching for me, I had a very different feeling about these characters. I think I was I think I'm more sympathetic to them and I think I see them in a different way. And so Youngblood argues that this is not a betrayal that they fall in love. And I'm paraphrasing him and maybe I'm really putting it into my own words, but the gist of what he's saying is that um they are connected through Anna. And that their falling in love or their connection that they have um, created, it's so strong because they share Anna in common. And that that could be part of the attraction. That these are two people who have just lost someone that they really cared about and loved. And in the absence of her, what do they do? And that maybe them falling in love is more connected to their grief, possibly. And to missing Anna. And I think Youngblood says that it's not uncommon, you know, for people to fall in love in that way when they've lost a person. Because, you know, um, that person is what connects them. It reminds them of that person or they can share memories. You know, they both knew that person. And so they feel more connected to each other because of it. Um, and I actually think I do agree. And I want to expand on it. Because I want to talk about grief for a moment. Because as far as Claudia and Sandra know, I think they assume that Anna is dead. They are still searching for her. I think they still have hope that she is alive. But there is this huge, strong possibility that she is dead. And so I think what they are feeling, to some extent, could be grief. And I think that... Um, some of you know or don't know, but I think about grief a lot and I talk about grief a lot and write about it. Um, it is an important subject in my life because of, you know, I lost my father in 2006 when I was 16 years old and it was catastrophic and it was devastating. And grief has just always, since then, grief has really obsessed me. And I think it's important to understand about grief that not everybody grieves in the same way and that we have these ideas about grief that are actually not true like the five stages it's a total myth actually um it was created by kubler ross but it was actually a book that it was part of a book that she wrote about people who were dying 
people who were in hospice. So those five stages were applied to people who were dying, not people who were grieving. But somehow these stages got put onto people who were grieving. I wish it was that easy. I wish it was that simple that you just went through these steps of grief. You don't. Grief is messy and complicated, just like people are messy and complicated. It's interesting. I'm just thinking of this. We recently had a really bad school shooting here in the United States at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. 17 children and administrators were killed, teenagers in high school. The the victims and survivors of that shooting, of that mass shooting, have been very loud and vociferous and fierce in calling for gun reform and gun control. They've used their platform. They've used social media. Um, James Woods, who I, I don't think I could ever watch another of his films because he is so odious and disgusting at this point. The actor James Woods posted some kind of video of one of these kids. I think Emma Gonzalez was part of it. Um, she's one of the the survivors of the shooting and she's very a big advocate and activist now for gun control and it showed her and, and some of her friends like just having a light moment where they were like laughing I think they were taking a selfie and I can't remember what James Wood said in his tweet but he said something like grief takes all forms or he was basically um critiquing their um expression of grief he was saying oh look at these kids they're supposed to be grieving and instead they're taking a selfie and they're laughing and things like that and other people responded you know what grief is complicated and complex and messy and if you had lost someone before you should know that and i would agree you know, after my father died, I reacted in ways that I did not expect and did things that I did not think that I would ever do. And so, yeah, you do laugh. You do have moments of levity. You do have moments like that and you feel bad about it and you feel guilty. Um, sometimes you don't seem to be the way, sometimes the way you feel inside doesn't always get expressed externally. And you don't always do things when you're grieving that you think you would do. I think most people think, oh, I would just get in bed and cry and I would never leave my bed. But you know what? If you have bills to pay and you have rent to pay or you're in high school or college and you have a test coming up like I did. I was in high school, um, my junior year of high school when he died. I had an exam that week. I had to go in and do that exam a week after my father died. So, yeah, you think you're just going to cry every day and you're never going to move again. You're never going to do anything. That's not what happens if you want to survive in the world. You do have to go back to work. You do have to go to school. You do have to go to the grocery store. And, yeah, sometimes you're going to laugh and you're going to do whatever, you know. Um, it doesn't make you a monster. It doesn't make you a bad person. It makes you human. And so I would argue argue with Sandro and Claudia, that that is partly of what's happening is that they are grieving, but their grief does not take really an acceptable in society's eyes form that they are doing things like falling in love with each other. That may be a way to comfort themselves 
it may be a way to survive. It feels good to kiss someone. It feels good to be wanted and desired. They're really taking comfort in one another's bodies, you know, and that does happen with grief. That does happen after a devastating loss that you want to find comfort and you want to connect to somebody. And who else would you connect to but the person that knows that person who is missing? So you have that connection and you can talk about them. And so with Claudia and Sandro, I think maybe in the earlier viewings of the film, I was more um, harsh, I think, on them. But I saw them differently. Not that Sandro gets off the hook. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying there are people that really judge what Claudia and Sandra are doing. And I would argue, like Youngblood, that um, there's something more going on there. And that they are connecting out of their shared love for Anna. And they are also connecting out of a need for comfort and solace at a very difficult time. Because they both don't know how to cope with what has happened. And they are in some way like substitutes. And Youngblood brings it up in his commentary how Claudia at one point wears one of Anna's shirts. At one point, she puts on this brunette wig that sort of makes her look a little bit like Anna. So in some ways, um, Claudia becomes the substitute for Anna. But I think they connect out of their shared pain and also their loneliness. You know, that they really don't seem to have anybody else. And so they turn to each other. And so to me, it's just amazing that the third or fourth time I watched this film, I realized something that I had never really realized. And so I love the sense that's in this film, that there is more going on under the surface, that these images are leading us to greater depths, the more that we see them or the more that we think about them. I mean, I think that's a really powerful part of this film is that every viewing leads to something more, you know. So um, at one point in the film, Sandra and Claudia, they, um, after the island, they go in different directions. Claudia wants to get away from him. She's scared of what she is feeling. She is resisting it. Um because she feels bad about it and she knows that it would be wrong, that it would look bad, that it would be a kind of betrayal of Anna to fall in love with Sandro. And she fights it, but eventually she can't fight it anymore. And um, she does go to Sandro. They meet in this city where there's been this sighting of Anna. Um, they're, they're searching for Anna, I guess, but I got this since they were more going through the motions that her going to the city was not really about this sighting of Anna. It was about being with Sandro. And so now we sort of, I think, transition into the part of the film where it is purely about Claudia and Sandro. It's not about Anna. Eventually, Anna basically, not only does she disappear physically, she disappears completely. That as a character, as a thought, as a memory, she is gone they don't really talk about her. We don't see Anna, obviously. There's nothing more about her. Nothing more. And um, I want to talk a moment about the love scene between Sandro and Anna. 
Sandro and Claudia, sorry. And it happens, it's so interesting, the contrast, because they go to this town that features this really cold, austere, fascist architecture. I think it was built by Mussolini. And, um, and, and there's such a contrast between that cold, lifeless, unfeeling architecture um, of these fascist buildings, um, fascist architecture. And we, we transition from that into this love scene that is, I think, one of the most erotic things I've seen. Like, it's so sensual. Um, the way that Sandro and Claudia lie in the grass, they're really like just drinking each other in. And there's these gorgeous close-ups of Monica Vitti's um, face. And it's a huge contrast to what we saw with Anna and Sandro at the beginning of the film, their love scene where Anna was like looking away from Sandra. She had her eyes open while they were kissing. She seemed very disconnected. And in this love scene, it's like rapture and, um, you know, ecstasy on the face of Monica Vitti. You know, Claudia is just the complete opposite. There's really like a rawness about the scene and like this hunger that you feel between the two of them. And um, Vidi conveys just the erotic pleasure of this moment. And I would imagine that there's something comforting about it too, that here she has been full of anxiety, full of fear, not knowing what's happened to Anna, not understanding her emotions for Sandro and what's happening. And I really felt like this scene was a moment of release for her a moment of relief a moment of pleasure um <clears throat> and it, it's interesting how the scene really centralizes claudia's pleasure that we don't see a lot of sandro's face we see him more more like the back of his head it's more focusing on monica vitti's pleasure and in that moment and i just thought it was gorgeous like the acting that she does in that scene is just astonishing in the audio commentary, Young Gene Youngblood said that it took days, days to do that scene. So they were like rolling in the grass for days and days. And it's just, I just can't get over the close-up of it. I mean, I think it sort of reminds me a bit of Falconetti in The Passion of Joan of Arc, which I talked about um, as part of this series on Formative Art House Films. I talked about Carl Theodore Dreyer's The Passion of Joan of Arc. And that is almost exclusively a film told in close-ups. And there is this ecstasy at times on the face of Falconetti. And it's quite beautiful to behold and, and it's quite moving. And I would sort of argue something similar with this love scene. That what Monica Vitti is doing in these close-ups is just stunning and, and it's just beautiful. It's just a beautiful scene. But even though Claudia loves loves being with Sandro, you can tell she is just ecstatic to be with him. She's still tormented and she's still conflicted. And I think this shows that she has morality, that she does have a sense of right and wrong. And she, she does have a sense of morality. You know, Sandro does not seem to be as tormented by it. You know, he, he, 
it doesn't seem to bother him as much. <laughs> but she is bothered, and it indicates her character, I think, that she does have issues with it, and she's struggling with that. At one time, he proposes shortly after the love scene. They're, they go to somewhere else, and he proposes. This is literally a woman he has known for a few days. I mean, she's quite shocked, and yet I think she's also flattered and I think because she's falling in love with him and she has let herself fall in love with him she has opened herself to it by going back to him at the city because remember they had parted and she had tried to stay away from him but then she gave into it and so a part of her I think she wants to be loved by Sandro she wants to marry him but I think at the same time I think she must have her doubts because I'm sure she's thinking why is he proposing to me after three days when he's been with Anna much longer you know why it's just very shocking <clears throat> but she lets herself fall for him and, and she wants to be with him so um one of the last things that I want to say about this film, there's so much to say. I've gone on a really long time, I know. But there's never enough like time to talk about this film. I also want to talk about the repeat viewing and how the more I watch this film, and it did not hit me until this viewing, this third or fourth viewing, um, the more I watch the film, the more I think um, about the film, I think it has something to say about masculinity and about men. And I'm going to make my argument. Um, in the character of Sandro, I think we have a very complicated portrait of masculinity. Um, but also an important portrait of masculinity, one that I think resonates today. Sandro is disconnected. He's alienated. He is not in touch with his feelings. He's, I mean, I don't know a lot about Italy, but there is a stereotype of Italy as very macho, you know, very, um, a lot of machismo, but I don't think that's unique to Italy. You know, I think this is sort of a global thing of masculinity, of a lot of men, a lot of cultures where men are told you need to be strong, you need to not have feelings, you need to be as masculine as possible, and you don't need to be feminine ever. Feminine is terrible. You know, there are these messages that men are sent. And I think we see a lot of that in Sandro, where he is disconnected, he is unfeeling, a lot of the time, there's a coldness, there's a distance about him. He does not show emotion. At first, he doesn't want to say that he loves Claudia. He eventually does say he loves her, but it takes him a little while to do that. He uses sex as a distraction in his life. He is often um, projecting this hyper-masculinity, I would say. And he has sex very easily. He's very nonchalant about sex. And he sort of does it as a distraction. I don't think it's always that he even wants to do it. It's just he doesn't know what else to do. Um, so it's sort of like this empty kind of sex that he has a lot. And, you know, at, at the end when he cheats on Claudia, you know, I don't even know if he really wanted the woman that he 
was with, he just kind of did it. You know, he, he's someone who's not very self-aware. He's not really sure why he does things. He just, he, there's an emptiness, there's a void and he's trying to just cope and he just does whatever, what he does, what he wants, right? I mean, um, he focuses on his own wants and, and pleasures and things like that. There is a scene in, in the film where he gets quite aggressive with Claudia and um, and she resists him. And it's sort of this moment of like, I think where she questions, do I really know this person? You know, we've only known each other a few days. He's already, already proposing to me. He doesn't seem to miss Anna. He's getting aggressive sexually. I would think at that point your your red flags are going off about this man that there is something off about him. But at the same time I think Sandro is trying to live up to um Sandro is trying to live up to these moments uh not moments but these ideals, these standards of what it means to be a man you know, and he's trying to conform to this idea of masculinity. And he has this juvenile aspect to him. He's very immature in some ways. Um, like asking her to marry him after knowing her for three days. I mean, it's like a little boy proposing to a little girl, right? It's, it's ridiculous. Will you marry me? It's like, you've known this woman three days. No. And then there's this other scene where he knocks this ink over on to someone who is doing a drawing. There's this young guy, he's like 23. And Sandro is an architect. And um, so this guy is, has this drawing out where he's drawing architecture or something. And Sandro knocks over an ink, um, an inkwell. And he ruins the guy's drawing. And it becomes this moment of like, he's a, Sandro's about to get in a fight. He's about to get attacked, you know, and... Um, but it was just, it doesn't, you know, he doesn't get hurt, but it's like this ridiculous, juvenile, immature moment that really speaks to who Sandro is. And um, I think in Sandro, we can really see how damaging these standards of manhood and masculinity can be, that it really can trap men in this sort of emotionally starved state that um, that is really damaging, you know? And um, I don't know if Sandro is really capable of love. I think we see the contrast between Claudia and Sandro that she is conflicted. She is not sure about the relationship. She has her doubts. He doesn't have any of that, you know? So did he really ever love Anna? Can he really love Claudia? Is this man capable of love at all? I would say no. I would say he's not capable of love at all. And um, I also want to talk a moment about the transformation of Claudia in the film. At the beginning of this film, when she's around Anna, I would say Claudia does not stand out at all. She, she barely has any presence at the beginning of the film. Anna is really the focus. But as the film goes on, and Jean Youngblood talks a little, Jean Youngblood says that the film is really about the spiritual sort of transformation of a woman that it's about a woman Claudia coming into self-knowledge that 
that for him and I guess for a lot of critics is the crux of the film. I had not thought about it that way but I, I guess that is true that Claudia's transformation is very important in this film. Over the course of the film she opens up she's and and she's very different from the other characters. You know Sandro's cold. Their friends are very rich and removed from life and sort of shallow um but Claudia is warm. She's sweet. She's she has a sense of of conscience, you know, in her worries and anxieties about what she's feeling for Sandro. That she knows it's not right. That she knows it's not you know okay, um, and yet she gives in. You know, so we don't always live according to the standards that we think we will. You know, we think we're one kind of person, but it's easy to think things about yourself, to have a theory about yourself. And then when you're actually in the real world and you're actually called on to act and participate, and when things actually happen and you have to address them and you have to react to them, sometimes you find out that you're a different kind of person. You know, I mean, there's a lot of people that think if they heard gunshots or something that they would go right to those gunshots. Well, when you're in that moment, you don't really know what you would do. So you think you're one way or you think the people around you are one way. But that doesn't mean that when called upon or when you're in that moment of pressure or that moment of risk, that you're going to act the way that you think you will. She struggles with her feelings for Sandro, but she gives in to them because she's human. <laughs> she's imperfect. She wants to be loved. So I think people who construct these characters as just bad, oh, they're empty and pretentious and they, you know, they're just, um, who cares? You know, they're just, they're shallow people. No, these characters are not shallow. Claudia is not shallow. Anna is not shallow. You could maybe say that about the rich sort of friends that they have. But these three main characters are not pretentious and they're not shallow. There is a depth there. They are authentic. They are real. They are imperfect and messy. And they make mistakes and they do things that they shouldn't because that's the way life is. You know, we do things that we should not do. And I think people who see Antonioni as this kind of cold intellectual director, I don't see it in La Ventura. I think La Ventura is down to earth. I think it's about the imperfections and the messiness of human beings and people who don't make the greatest decisions and don't do the greatest things. That, you know, in their pain and grief, Sandro and Claudio find comfort in each other's arms and... Maybe to some people that is a betrayal, but I think you can read it either way. I think you could say that there is a reason for this, that they are profoundly human in their longing for each other and in their desire to be loved. The problem is that Claudia wants to be loved by someone that I don't think can love her, that I don't think is capable of loving her. And that is what she discovers at the end of the film when Sandro cheats on her and she finds Sandro with another woman 
And there is that final haunting, mysterious, open-ended scene of him crying on a bench. I mean, this is the first time in the film that Sandra has really shown emotion. You know, he is crying. He is raw. He is, you know. And um, Claudia goes to him and she puts her hand on his head. It's it's just this it's this beautiful image, but it's also highly open to interpretation of what does this mean, you know. Um is this grace? You know, is this her showing a moment of grace? Is this showing forgiveness? Is this show her showing pity? You know, I don't think that they can have a relationship after what has happened, and I think she does see that he cannot love. And he cannot love her. He may have loved Anna, but he cannot love Claudia. I, how would I interpret it? I think maybe it's a moment of forgiveness. Or it's a moment of like kindness. Of her seeing who he is. You know. It's tough. I I don't know exactly how I would interpret that ending. And sometimes you don't need to interpret everything about a film. You know, sometimes I think you should leave room for just feeling, you know, and, um, and, and just opening yourself, surrendering yourself to the film itself and not always understanding the meaning of everything and realizing that sometimes there is no meaning that, you know, we've been so conditioned that every single thing in a film, think of like Hitchcock, you know, every single thing in a film has meaning and purpose and every single thing is advancing the plot. And watching La Ventura is not like that. There are things that happen that have no meaning and have no point. There is not much of a plot and not everything that happens advances the plot. It's just characters moving through landscapes, moving through the world, interacting with each other, being complicated and being flawed beings, um, searching for something that they can't even put into words, feeling that something is missing inside of them and they don't know how to find it, you know. And I wonder if that search for Anna is really a search for what is missing. That it's this larger search that all of us go through. We are searching for what is missing. We are searching for what is absent. And that's what sort of Anna is in a way. She is this absence. You know, she is sort of this gaping hole. And Claudia and Sandro are searching um, for a way to <clears throat> to cope with that or, or to feel that in in some way. And so they turn to each other. and But that doesn't work because they are always, there is always something missing that we'll never find. We just won't. Like, I believe that. I just, I don't think there is any inherent meaning in life, you know. I'm not religious. I'm an atheist. I don't know what Antonioni was. I don't think there are necessarily religious overtones to the film in any way. I think a, one of the struggles of life is to cope with the meaningless, the meaninglessness of life. 
that there is no inherent meaning to it or purpose. You can create that for yourself. You can try to find that for yourself. But I don't think it exists beyond us and beyond what we construct or create in terms of meaning. So this film is amazing. It's important in my own life. It has a lot of um, things that really resonate with me. And so I'm really glad I was able to talk about it. I've talked for a long time, but I had a lot that I wanted to say. And I hope that there was something valuable in what I had to share with you. Um, This film is just essential. It's one of my essentials. And um, it's just part of me. It really is part of me. And it was such a pleasure to watch it again. I got completely engrossed in it. And um, it's that kind of film. It's like you just enter this world and you don't want to leave because the images are so perfect. There is an aesthetic pleasure to watching it. So I hope that you'll watch it or rewatch it. Um, Yeah. Thanks so much for listening. I'll stop here. Bye for now. Until next time, keep watching great films.